From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 117, and today I'm joined by Norm Wilner, the head film critic for Now Magazine, as well as a podcaster in his own right. You can check out his podcast, Someone Else's Movie, on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. All right, so we're sitting down to watch The Night of the Hunter. I'm Jeremy. I have not seen this film. Uh, I'm Norm. I have not seen it in about 10 years. Right. Yeah. I, I got the Blu-ray and I played with the supplements, but I haven't watched the feature. Nice, nice. And I, I just got the Blu-ray on the last flash sale, so it's new. And I picked it up and I actually know nothing about this movie. Awesome. I know zero things. So I'm going into this super cold. I don't even know, I don't think I even know the cast. Okay. How I much do you want to know? Like, nothing. What should we talk tell about? Tell me nothing. Okay. Um, well, I can, well, I'll tell you why, why sure, I yeah, picked yeah. it up. Uh, I picked it up. Because um, Criterion's website has a lot of those great um, top ten lists curated by sure. a variety of people. Filmmakers, actors, all the things. And this, I th- think, I didn't do like the hard re- numbers on it. But it seemed like this was the one that was the most reoccurring on a lot of people's lists. And not just a lot of people's lists, but a lot of like variety of people who didn't have anything else matching. Yeah. But the Night of the Hunter popped up over and over and over again. And I was like, well, that can't be a mistake. <laughs> I can see that. It's uh, it's one of those movies that, what can I say and what can I not say? It's one of those movies that showed up a lot on television in a lot of people's youths. It was part of a cable package. It was part of it, like UHF stations would carry it. And it would always, the story I always hear from people who saw it at a certain age or a certain point in time was, there was this weird black and white movie and I saw this thing actor in it and I couldn't look away and that is absolutely valid um, it's a film that is sort of like no other um, both for the story it tells and for the manner in which it tells it uh, you know who directed it right you know that story. I just know Charles Lawton you were mentioning it I actually was thinking that today I'm like I don't know much about him well he was an actor this is the only film he ever directed oh, okay so if you know his work as an actor uh, he was sort of a um uh, very Twitter. expressive, very demonstrative actor. Came up in the 30s, played the Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, did the... He's in... Yeah. Oh, I want to say Spartacus. He looks like a John Candy. He kind of does. He's a, he a large presence, as well as a big guy. And um, never a leading man, although he played leading man roles, but he was always a, it was always a weird fit. And I think that sort of strange fit aspect to him works very well for him being a director because he only did it once. He did it very much his way, which was 
uh, captured in the documentary that's yeah, in the Criterion saying. Collection, The Night of the Hunter, directed by a Charles Lawton film, I think is what it's called. And it basically is just the... Uh, the camera kept running. He never called. He called Cup. The camera kept running, and he would just wander onto the set and talk to the actors. And they filmed it all. And so there's this two and a quarter, two hour, twenty minute documentary, which is all just cuts from the film, and it's mesmerizing because you see his process as a filmmaker and an actor because he's sort of offering line readings to certain people and figuring out the physicality. It's just and that's amazing. I was saying to Norm when he first told me this a few minutes before we started rolling because this movie came out in 1955. Yeah. Shot on thirty five millimeter. Shot on thirty five is like, I, for those that aren't aren't film savvy and the business side of it. Film is not cheap. No, you know you don't keep rolling unless you have to because all that. I mean, I guess you just wouldn't. But they processed it because we have it for the documentary. Yeah, they printed everything. So no, yeah, I was just saying. I was saying, you normally you would just go. Oh, don't print any of this because it's uh, it costs double to print everything. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think... No wonder he never directed anything else, because well, they probably it. blew the butt. Yeah, I don't think he knew. And the cinematography wasn't cheap. Like It's it's an elaborate, beautiful film. Uh, it was not something that was just slapped together in the in the noir factory. It's, it's its own thing. And there really isn't... There have been people who have tried to emulate it. There have been people who unconsciously emulated it. Um, April Wolf's podcast, uh, Switchblade Sisters, had... Jordana Spiro on, and she just released a film, and the name just flew out of my head, but she, the way she described it, and she picked Night of the Hunter to talk about, but the way she described it, it was, she'd made an unconscious sequel for her directorial debut. Oh, hilarious. Yeah. And do you know what the, why the reason is that he never made another movie? I think the experience was just too strange for him. I think... He didn't enjoy it. From the documentary, I don't know that he, I don't know that he finished the movie and knew what he was doing. Because it's, uh, it's a very intuitive film. It's, it works. It's great. I'm really jealous of you getting to see it for the first time uh, as an adult. Because I saw it first, I think, in, I think I saw it at the Bloor, maybe, or the the Paradise. It was just something I saw in, in university. So yeah. it would have been like 1980, 87, 88 that I saw it for the first time. And it was just dazzling. But I was still, like, I was 19. I was unformed. Yeah. And to see it now and, and be really cognizant of the themes. Because it's about... Children and adults, uh, and and that's a, not really a spoiler. But I was very much on one side of that story, and now I think I'll be able, you, like you'll be able to experience right. it from both sides. Interesting. So yeah, should uh, I grab you from? He might still be awake. It <laughs> might give him nightmares. Let's uh, not do that then. But yeah, it's. I'm really. I'm just excited to watch you watch the movie. This is going to be great. All right. Well, let's just dive in then. Sure. Let's all go to the lobby. Alright, so we just finished. Uh, yeah, that's unlike <laughs> anything I've ever seen in my entire life. Right? Like, it's just, it, it defies every expected convention at the time, which is probably why it was a massive flop. But it's so good. It, it doesn't have a tone, but it has a tone. Its consistency is inconsistent. I, I, the first time I saw it, I was just sort of I, I, it was the late '80s, and I just kept thinking, "Oh, Terminator came out of this." That's what that's what he was drawing on. And this time, you see Frankenstein. Oh, wow. You see, I mean, it's a horror movie that isn't. There's no violence on camera. There's nothing explicit. The, even when he even when he grabs Pearl's arm, you don't see it. You just hear her squawk. Yeah, but it's also fascinating because it, it it's the kind of thing where it's it defies all the tropes of all the movies that you think it's going to become mm-hmm. because. Um, you know, when the kids are, you know, when 
just that that one the night the first night when they go to escape and he uh and they kind of thwart him in the cellar yeah like in most movies you expect to say oh this is the ending they're going to kill him yeah, yeah. or get away and that's it but it's like no that that that's not even the third act yeah, yet yeah it's the it's the end of act 1 and a half i mean it's it's sort of the halfway point in the movie narratively yeah. but there's already been a three act structure yeah, so but it's almost it's interesting because you mentioned that Lawton never made another film and had made one before. Who wrote it? Uh, it's based on a book by uh, I'm going to get his initials wrong. C. L. Grubb. Um, it's just this little pulp noir that it isn't really even a noir. It's more like a misbegotten biblical narrative. I've never read it. I only understand it. Yeah, me. and that's what makes it fascinating because it's almost like it's it's like you said it's made by someone who does know how to make a movie. And that's all over it. Yeah, but he knows what he wants. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't know how to make it conventional, to, to, to create a cinematic thing that people would recognize. But what's also great about it is because of that, is you have no idea where the hell it's going. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just drifts along and it's like, okay. Like the way it opens with just, it, it almost feels like it's inspired by It's a Wonderful Life. With, yeah, like, the stars in the background and just the silhouetted face. Yeah, that's, that's, and we don't even know, like, we see Lillian Gish's face, but we won't see her in the movie for 70 minutes. At least, at least another hour. Yeah. Uh, and then just five creepy superimposed kid heads yeah. underneath her. I felt you sort of responding to it across the couch. Yeah, like, being like, what, what the fuck is this? Yeah. But it's exactly right, right? Because yeah. it's a fable, it's setting and you... Then, yeah, and then it cuts to some kids finding a body in a cellar, yeah. which you never come back to. And then later on, you just, I guess, kind of assume it's one of the other widows he killed. Yeah, I assume it's number 24. Yeah, the last one, and now he's on his yeah, way. Because he's t- immediately introduced talking about, you know, how God provides, and Lord, you provide me with a widow, and uh, he, he sort of... Yeah. He's sort of knocking the woman he's just murdered to God uh, and thanking God for putting this harlot in his in his path because we immediately see him at, at the burlesque show and we understand everything about this guy uh, in a second. You know, like he's a preacher with serious sexual hang-ups. Yeah, but he is... Murderous rage. And it's interesting because at first it's like, oh, he's a con man posing as a preacher. And it's yeah. like, no, he's a preacher. He's legit a preacher, a sociopathic preacher. Yeah. I There's a... There's a reading of this movie that I love, which is that God is real and talking to him. And he's sending him as a test to the kids. Like he's a, the preacher himself, Harry Powell, is a dupe, but his relationship with God is valid. Yeah. Which I find absolutely fascinating. I kind of felt that way. Yeah, because then he shows up at Lillian Gish's door and she sees right through him. She's actually quoting scripture. She knows what to do and, and is morally upright. And God is on her side. Yeah. But so if if people are constantly being tested, who's sending the tests? And I think this is the story of a golem, like a demon who's sent to test people. But he's human. He's just he's he's a pitiable. Yeah, fool. yeah, yeah. But he really does have a relationship with God. Because even at the end, he he runs into the barn for protection. But it's like, why does he stay there? There's moments when they all go into the house that he easily could have escaped. Yeah, yeah, he's a wounded animal. I mean, I, I think it really is. He ran simple. pretty good for a wounded animal. Yeah, and she shot him in the shoulder. I mean, you see the blood stain, yeah. and it sort of matches the blood on on um, Peter Graves' sh- uh, shirt in the beginning, sort of that echo of you know, yeah. of, of John's father dying uh, or being arrested uh, is, is valid, and that that's too that's so weirdly powerful when 
you I, like I first time I saw it, I thought that kid is not a good actor. He's he's his reactions are weird. He smiles too much. Yep. He looks uncomfortable. Yep. And then you realize you're watching somebody come out of trauma for the entire film, and he's repressing. You know, he loses both his parents. When you think about it, like, oh, well, it's set during the Depression. These kids are dealing with hardship all the time. No, this kid just, his father's been hanged. His mother's fallen in with a monster who then murders her. Yeah, and it all happens with, with the exception of the beginning and however long well, we it's 30 we, days we're away. Minimum, right? Because he's sentenced to prison for 30 days. And in that time, the whole movie, well, the except- father comes in and he meets him in his cell. Yeah. And he's not released until after he's hanged. So it's 30 days later. Yeah, he is, he's sentenced to 30 yeah. days. So it's 30 days later, and then they get remarried within a week of it knowing seems each other. Fast, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, the only lapse in time is how long uh, John and Pearl are with that woman before he comes along. Yeah, and it's probably not too long because God is guiding him. He's never very far. Yeah, you get a sense that they're into some kind of routine, though, so it's like maybe a week or two. Mm. And well, then, they're in the boat for a week to begin with. We know that. Before they get to her. Right. And then we get a a weird little epilogue. The Christmas epilogue. At Christmas, which... I always I was saying before we started recording, I always forget about the Christmas stuff, because to my mind, it ends with... Well, it does end. There's no reason for that scene. You don't don't need it at all. It doesn't show anything. At first, I'm like, oh, is this to demonstrate that they got to keep the money, and they're all well off? Mm -hmm. But but no, I don't think so. I was curious what the... um, the amount was now the inflation calculator on that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just... It, what a fa- There were some beautiful shots. You were saying the uh, those shots where... Especially there's that one where they're sleeping up in the barn and they hear the they hear Powell, Robert Mitchum, um in the Singing distance. Singing his way over and to And they look at it and yeah. it's just a silhouette across that the backlit by the horizon. And it's like, that's a... An incredible shot. Yeah, and I think it's a soundstage. I mean, it, none of it. There, there's obviously there's some clouds and and some some establishing shots that are exterior, but I think most of that is backdrops and soundstages and backlots. I mean, yeah. the city, the towns are all backlot. What year is this supposed to take place? I think. Well, they mentioned the depression, so it's already been called that. So it's probably mid thirties. Okay, let's just say thirty three for fun. Uh, what, $10,000 would have been $10, worth? $10,000 would have been worth uh, now. A quarter of a million? Oh, that's your guess? That's probably wildly overestimating it. Let's find out. Yeah. It would be a little less. 195000 Whoa. Wow. That's, yeah, that's enough to kill a few people for if you're a, a, a sadomasochistic preacher wandering the earth. That wants to build a church with it, I guess? Yeah, yeah he does mention plan. that. Or, I mean, that's what he says. Well, that's what he says, but then because you really buy into the whole church aspect... I kind of believe that is his plan. Yeah. I mean, maybe in the moment. He lies about everything. He lies about them being his kids. He lies about how well he knew their father. I just, I think he'll say whatever he needs to say to justify his actions. So if he's trying to get someone to confess in the name of God and, you know, we could put the money towards a church, that would be a, a way of, of working out your sins. Yep, that's fair. But he does, but he does legitimately talk to God. Yeah, and he sets up a revival tent. That's true. That's the other thing I really love about it, too, is that his intervention actually makes Shelley Winter's character a better Christian. Like, yeah, and then he murders she, her. She dies in a state of grace and he kills her. And why does he kill her again? He doesn't, there's no real reason for it. No, it's just what he does. I mean, he kills widows and takes their money. I assume that he, once he figures out she doesn't know where he, where the money is, he just, she's, she's useless no use to him. him. And he hates her. 
I mean, he loathes her physically. Yeah. Um, we see that that awful, awful scene in the bedroom where it's shot like a, the inside of a, of a tabernacle with the, the point yep. of, the, of the ceiling. Oh, what an, that was amazing, too. Yeah, where she's, she's cast out of her own home, essentially, but she's not allowed to leave. Yeah. And it's just, it, it pulls on something Catholic, but it's not Catholic. It's... No, he's whatever pact he's made with God, he says. Yeah, he, me and the Almighty have worked out our own... Uh, yeah, because she's really down to uh, to have a wedding night. Yeah, and that's that's something else that's really strange in this film, is the way that it handles sex and attraction and, and physical chemistry. It's... Um, Everyone loves him. Yeah, he has a way. Like, he bewitches people um, and then rejects them. Or yeah. he wants them so much that he has to kill them, which is the scene in the burlesque theater that gets him arrested. Ruby, Ruby falls in love with him too. Yeah, he has some strange power, and all he did was buy her a magazine and ice cream, and he's he's. And I mean, you buy me a magazine and <laughs> ice cream, Norman. I'm gonna feel pretty good about you well, too. Well, you know, I'm a funny yeah. guy, but he has a he has a thing that isn't natural, right? He's he's incredibly slippery. We see through him. The camera sees through him every single time, but people believe him, and perhaps it's because. A, a preacher in, you know, wherever they are along the Ohio River in the 1930s is going to have some respectability and, and, and maybe the sense of salvation when you have nothing, that's the thing you turn to. I and mean, we were constantly hearing about going to, going to church on Sunday and how everybody's yeah. worshiping. But we can tell, like, it's it's just a line that he's he's throwing out, but he pitches a good line. Like, he makes a great case for, for himself as a representative of God. Yeah. He conducts himself. He's always well-dressed. And then the second he's challenged, he turns into this gibbering, screeching monster. Yeah. Um, he can't hold in his temper. Uh, he he screeches like a, like a monster when she shoots him. And that scene in the swamp, when he's trying to get to the boat, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. It's stagey. And then I realized the kids are lighter. They won't sink into the swamp. And he does. But it's also because that's where he belongs. And it's Frankenstein's monster coming out to get the girl in, in the first in the James Whale movie, and it's all of this other weird elemental stuff that he becomes this this grasping, flailing monster the second the kids resist him mm-hmm. uh, in the cellar on the way up. Like he's just he loses physical coordination and he just becomes a, incoherent, and it's terrifying. Yeah, there's no he, reason it should be. No, but it is. But once he knows, yeah, once he knows the jig is up, he. He be turn, he just he becomes that golem you were talking about. That's yeah. really really I like that interpretation quite a bit actually. Yeah, I, I think he's I think there's a there's a reading that I really like. I think he's the I think he's an agent. Well, I mean, something. there's zero about this movie that is subtle yeah. in any way. I mean, there's it li- literally cuts to that shot of the owl and the and the rabbit eating, eating the bunny. Yeah, yeah, it's just short of showing the rabbit being killed by the bunny, which. I was surprised they didn't. You could see the stringer on the owl's neck. I don't know if you noticed it. Tugging him to make the turn? Make him him fly away, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, there's just so much. The music was just driving at you to let you know. Just there's that moment at the very beginning inside Spoons, the the ice cream parlor, Mm -hmm. where um, Mrs. Spoon is, is giving... Her lecture, the 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 widow lecture about yeah. how she's got to get remarried, and he keeps on cutting back and forth to the train yeah. that you know he's arriving on, but it's also just blaring. It just goes from, but it's great because the monster is coming, right? Yeah, that's it, and and she's being primed to be a sacrifice, even though she doesn't know it, uh, and it's all because of responsibility, and it's all in the idea of taking care of her children who 
clearly take care of themselves just fine when they need to. But yeah, yeah it's he this, puts Pearl to bed. This tragedy is on its way, and nothing they do can stop it. I was surprised the um, the paper doll uh, dollar bill never showed up. Mm. Oh, they get blown under as he. Yeah, I know. I, know, I noticed that. That was a nice move. Yeah. But I was just surprised that I like that. But then I was expecting he'd be out in the yard later. Oh, I see. And then yeah. he would just see it and know that Pearl had played with it. Mm. Obviously, that's true. So that would have worked. But again, that's what we'd, a normal movie would do, and this just isn't going to do that. No, it just it just gives you a lot of things, and then just kind of leaves it there. Mm-hmm. There's also that I can't, in the in halfway through the movie, I I started going, oh, what happened to that thread? And then I realized there's just one scene where uh, they had that one scene with a, a guard from the prison where mm-hmm. it cuts to like him and his family. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess that, that's just to give you a passage of time. Yeah. Well, I think it's also to set up the ending where he's, you know, whatever for whatever reason he stayed in his job and he says, oh, this one I'm, I'm going to enjoy. Right. Because you can't, you know, here's a man who deserves to die. death and we're finally going to witness it. Yeah, I guess it's thematically setting that up. Yeah. So the one thing that didn't make a lick of goddamn sense <laughs> at all is Uncle Bernie, who uh, who saw the mom in the water But dead. was convinced that he'd be blamed for it. Yes. Yeah. That 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 I didn't buy. I that what a what a wonderful shot of uh the the seaweeds or whatever the underwater plantation. Yeah. He refers to something. Like he he actually Bertie says it's like her hair was waving like marsh grass or something, but whatever that is, that's, that's, that's just the image. Gorgeous. And that sh- and again you look at that shot, it's like how they get that shot? Like they must have been in an aquarium. I assume so, yeah. It's the only the way tank, to- maybe. The money that went into this movie. Yeah. I'd love to, I'm, I'm going to definitely dive into the supplements because I'm just curious about how this guy got, because this movie clearly had some money behind it. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, Stanley Cortez, who shot The Magnificent Ambersons for Wells, just doing literally everything to convince us that we're seeing some sort of supernatural, unrealistic world. I mean, it, it is like swamp noir or something. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, the lighting is definitely lends itself into the noir. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the some of those exterior shots and those wide shots are just just amazing. You look at that and it's like, how, yeah, you're right. The only way to do that is inside of a studio. But then you got to go. So they built a, a a river inside the studio. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe it's only six inches deep or something, but it's still. Oh, like, it wouldn't need to be much. It's yeah, dark, but just enough it, to get the boat in. It's still an amazing thing. But even the barn, like the way they, they there's some depth to that, mm-hmm. how far away it is. Like that's pretty impressive stuff. Oh no, it's a beautiful film. It really is, and and I think that's why all those stories of people catching it on TV and being hooked in. Of course, like if you see those images, you're just going to wonder what they are. It's why. intriguing, but also, I mean, the only stuff. It, it's it's a shame the opening of the film has so many of those really shaky, shitty helicopter shots. Yeah, no stakeholders. Yeah, but it just but also just the it, it's clearly they're using a lesser film stock because it's grainier, it falls apart. That those things were all shot on sixteen mm. because they don't hold up the way that the thirty five does. Yeah, I wonder if part of that too is the restoration that we saw because there's there's a still frame that I'd completely forgotten about when he's when they've locked him in the cell. Yeah, there's just a shot of the. Two I thought the the disc froze. Yeah, no, it, it's it's there, but I forgot about it. I, I think it's just an artifact to fix a shot that wasn't recoverable. Uh, Maybe all they had was a production still for a cutaway. So they just held it. But yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, um, there's another, there's another one where there's a still frame before a fade. I think it freezes on Lillian Gish for a second as it fades into the next shot. And that 
might be because they lost the rest of the shot or just because that's always been like that. Well, you couldn't have... Uh, it, was it a dissolve? Yeah. That's why. is because you can't um, upgrade dissolves because you don't have... Th- those things would have been sent off. Those being separate shots, right? Like yeah. You do the splicing of the two cuts and then you'd send off however many frames of the tail and the top of the next shot, you'd send that off to the lab. Right, it's an optical. And, and they'd send you back um, like a finished thing that was just one short film again. Mm-hmm. That would be the finished optical. But that's all you would have. You wouldn't have the camera originals from that. Right. Probably. So the still frame, so they're replicating it based on what they had before the film. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. And what they're coming in on, probably. Yeah, because there was no way they wouldn't have they wouldn't have the uh, original film anymore. It's off in some it's in some bin. Yeah, well, as fifty five United artists, it could be yeah, it could be anywhere. Oh, probably once they did the optical, they made oh, a couple copies of the optical shot. They they did that. They would throw away the remainder. Oh, probably if the movie wasn't a success. I suppose. God, that's just. That's but then again, but they have, but that, but maybe not. I mean, well, they didn't have it for this, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they had all that footage of him just letting the camera roll and talk yeah. to actors. That, that surfaced later. I know that that wasn't a byproduct of the restoration. It came at least five years afterwards. Yeah, but if they're sending this out to some kind of lab that's just doing optical shots all day long, mm-hmm. there's a chance they would have sent back the the frames that were used. I imagine, but but yeah, if United Artists didn't care about preserving it at the time. Then they would have just been the say, like, oh, it's twelve frames on either side. Who cares? We have that. Yeah. We have the optical shot and three backups of it. No one's ever going to miss this. Yeah, but once you when you're upgrading it and cleaning it, uh, and you can't, you you they do their best to up to clean up the optical. But right. after that, but and you've already lost a generation if you've got an optical shot, right? Because it's the old that old trick from the '80s where you used to be able to recognize when a special effect was going to start because it would suddenly get grainier in the theater. Yeah, yeah, that's I I got really good at that. It's so funny. As a boy. Remember cigarette burns? Oh, yeah. No one believes us now. I still have, I have some VHSs that still have cigarette burns mm. on them. I think they've cleaned them all up for DVD. They the are, part. apparently they're restoring them to certain 4K restorations, like Bridge on the River Kwai. They're putting them back in? So it feels like you're seeing it the way it was originally presented. It's hilarious. I kind of love that. They're adding imperfections. Yeah. It's interesting. Like that, 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 that's the one thing to... Um, that we, we, we noticed and talked about when we watched uh, Temple of Doom the other night, uh, which is the previous episode to this. I'm not spoiling an episode, <laughs> but just how uh, how bad the effect, how how poorly a lot of old movies uh, hold up effects-wise because of Blu-ray. Oh, is it the... Um, it's the matte shots. The go-motion stuff that they did? Because that always looked like it was it was weirdly orange and pink. You yeah, know, it's like most- the Muppet of Molaram falling down... No, it's that, but it's like every time the guy, the people are uh, are thrown over into the fire pit, like the, oh yeah, there's just a mat around them. There's a couple of shots, wide shots, where they've clearly uh, superimposed them into them. Okay, uh, and just okay, some things, that, some things that I never realized were effect shots. Right, when I was a kid, but the HD is just. But the HD is like, ooh, that's uh, <laughs> that's an effect shot. Yeah, they were old. There's the. The laser discs, I think, of Star Wars still had the matte boxes around the TIE Fighters and the and the X-Wings, and that was the first thing that Lucas corrected in 97 with the special editions. That Supposedly, that was his excuse. He wanted to fix some of the effects, and then he ended up just continuing to make changes. I know. Nah, I don't believe it either. But Once, uh, you, once you crack it open. 
someday we're going to get the originals restored and they're going to they're going to look so boxy and weird and it's going to be great. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've seen, have you seen the despecialized versions? No, I've heard about them. So we did that's what we did when we did Star Wars for the podcast was I found someone who had never seen it at all. Okay. And then we did it with her and my son who has only seen the bastardized right. that are on Blu-ray. I must have seen I must have heard this episode. I must yeah. have the whole show. So um so we sat down and so for Ephraim it was like he was really shocked by all the things that he didn't think would have been upgraded, like all the com- all the computer screens. Right. Oh that's them. yes, I do remember you mentioning all those kind of things. Because the screens are in English in the original. Yeah, and they're all and they're all, you know, really dated and whatnot. They they have no all the graphics, everything's been replaced. And that was mm-hmm. the stuff that I probably wasn't expecting, but he was just like, Oh yeah, that's huh. Because yeah. he's seen the movie at least as much as I've seen it now. Right. Or if not, maybe he more. Was raised on the wrong version. Yeah, so that's all he remembers. Right. Where I would have seen probably that at some point. Um, so it's interesting. I have a copy of the Despecialized. I could probably... Uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind. Hook you up with it. at some point. Great. Yeah. Uh, what else about this one? Um, well, yeah, your first viewing. Tell me more. What else? I mean, refresh me on what Robert Mitchum is known for. It's he's oh he was like the he was sort of the thinking man's lunk right? he he looked a certain way and he always played against it he was he had this incredible warmth that he could just turn off he's got a great voice yeah like he's he's I'm I'm gonna do an injustice to his career just by thinking about like Thunder Road and uh, he was famously busted for pot and unrepentant uh, in Hollywood in the fifties maybe for him. maybe just after this or maybe just before. Um, Aged amazingly well into this sort of bulldog yeah. presence. Was he Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? No, that can't be right. The guy's got a very similar voice. I can't imagine him dancing. Singing, absolutely, but I don't yeah. know about dancing. Cape Fear. Uh, Cape Fear is another one of my black holes. Oh, it's, that's a, um, what was that, 1961, 1962, sort of stripped down um, brutality uh, of a courtroom drama that turns into a thriller. But the greatest thing about it is that De Niro, uh, in in playing the Mitchum role in the um, in, in the remake, the remake yeah. stole the love and hate from Night of the Hunter, among other things. Like all of his tattoos are references to to other things, but the love and hate is is from. Dorothy oh, and he's in the Mitchum remake the too. Yeah, he plays. A, I think he plays a judge or a lawyer. He's got a really small role. But um, yeah, he was in. Oh, oh yeah, and he's Preston and Scrooged. That's right. Yes, that's right. He's the the boss of the um, yeah the the, the network company, the network. Yeah. Oh fuck. That's yeah. He's the guy that is watching TV at the end when they're cutting back and forth. Yeah, he was in. Um, I don't know if he was in ill health, but he started doing less and less movement. He was very very static in the movies that I grew up watching. Oh well, by the by the time he's in Scrooge, he's uh, yeah. Well, he must have been in his seventies. Yeah, and he was Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep in seventy eight. And he, oh, he played a whole bunch of Philip Marlowe. He did the yeah, he was a whole was series of it. Cable movies, maybe or, or network movies. Yeah, I've never heard of those versions of them, so I assume something of that yeah. ilk. It's one of those things where if I had my wits about me, I would I could spit out twenty or thirty movies. But Mitchum has always just been like this, and The Winds of War was all over TV when I was a kid, and he was the lead in that. So yeah, that's what I've associated him with. But he was in. Oh, what was it? That Universal film in the '60s after Cape Fear, some weird um, all-star thing. I can't remember. I think he might be in one of the airport movies. We should just look this up. <laughs> I've got it here, but I'm not. I'm, 
Now I'm looking up Shelley Winter because I'm trying to remember where else I've seen oh, her. Oh, Terror. Uh, uh, Poseidon Adventure probably is the most famous thing she's done. But she won two Oscars and, and she's... Oh, Lolita. Incredible and... screen person. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, Charlotte Hayes, that's it. So yeah, IMDb has her for Patch of Blue, Lolita, Poseidon Adventure, and Night of the Hunter. Uh, oh, that's right. And she was Roseanne's grandmother on Roseanne. Yes, that. that's where I really know her from. Yeah. Yes, that Shelley, that, that's the Shelley, see that's the Shelley Winter I know. Yeah, she had a reputation for like kind of big blowsy parts, but she was a really subtle actor. I mean, she's doing some stuff in in this that's given how um, how clunky that role could have been. I think she's doing uh, some really interesting work. Oh yeah, so Mitchum, of course, I forgot. Out of the past, uh, just yeah, just seven years earlier, this it was a film that they remade as um, Against All Odds. Okay, with Jeff Bridges and. Uh, this was Mitchum and Judy Greer, and he's the detective who goes to find this woman and falls in love with her, and uh, it's just this great old school. That's a proper film noir. Nice. So seeing him in this, yeah, this is real... a weird one where it's like it's not like you said. It's like it has a tone. It has a tone all of its own because it's not. It's a noir just in the sense that it's like, you know, you know he's he's introduced in shadow, and you know exactly. Although he's not like it's not until. The movie lets us know that yes, he's the villain. Yeah, or he's and the he's villain. Cloaked in darkness, and then we never get away from it. Yeah. And just the moment when uh, um, Johnny, John, John, John is putting Pearl to bed, and he literally says something about bad people, and then all of a sudden the, his silhouette is draped across his face. Yeah, he looms. He's telling the story of... He's, he's making up a story about a good king and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the evil that arrives. And the evil and that the arrives. Is, and yeah. the evil like arrives. He's, he, as though he's conjured up. Um, if we didn't... It's one of those things where... Oh, was it... Yeah, it was Ebert. Ebert reviewed The, Hitch, the Hitcher, the one with Rutger Hauer and, and C. Thomas Howell, and just said that it's a... like His indestructibility isn't a flaw of the screenwriting. It's the fact that this character exists only to torment C. Thomas Howell. And he, I've never forgotten the review. He ends by saying, like, if you wonder if he'd taken a different road, if the Hitcher would have been there instead. And that's the sort of presence that, that the preacher has in this film. He is an inevitability. He is coming for you. I think that's why I thought of Terminator the first time. Like, I love that reference. I think that's great. With, can't be bargained with. Won't stop until he gets what he wants. Yeah. Well, they even there's a there's, John makes a comment while they're he's up in the mouth at one point. He's like, does this guy not sleep? Yeah. Like, he never stops. Yeah. He's just he's a relentless force. There's what a Halloween in it too. Yeah. Kills he's, anything that cuts in his way. Takes the horse from that. You know. And everybody is so quick to blame. Everything gypsies or. You know, harlot women. Poor gypsies. The white man gets a pretty good ride in this film. Like, he gets away with everything because he's in the figure... He cloaks himself as a figure of authority. Yeah, and people just want to instantly believe him. Even though he's got the prison tattoos, which I guess wouldn't have been known as prison tattoos. No, he just he comes tells, up with a He tells story. that story. Yeah. Yeah. And he snaps right into it for Lillian Gish, and she just is not buying it. You know, like, he speeds up, he goes into his pattern. You want to know the story about the left hand and the right hand, the good hand and the right hand? And she's just like, nope. Yeah. Shuts him right down. Exactly. Shotgun on the porch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's so good. She's yeah. She's so good. And um, I, I've heard this somewhere. It might be on the supplements. It might be somewhere else. But Lawton cast her because he wanted to reach back to the silence and, and deliberately inspire awe in people old enough to remember her coming up 
in the olden days. But it's funny because she feels like, like you said, I, I, it's interesting. She, she feels like the most nuanced performance of the whole movie. Yeah, well, she's you know loving and kind and knowledgeable and also capable of defense and 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 uh, what's clarity. She sees the truth. She's like she's the best Christian of all of them because she takes in orphans, even though she acknowledges the circumstances that some of them came from. Some of them aren't orphans. She's just taking care of women's illegitimate children yeah and just that's fine don't forget to come on sunday we'll go to church together like she's she is actually walking the walk yeah uh and she is perfectly willing to take up arms against a monster when she sees one she's great yeah i hope she got the money in the end maybe the police gave it back to her it's evidence or something they'd never do that it's hard to say yeah yeah, yeah. they uh yeah. well i guess they have to prove that that was the money but the same as when when they have john on the stand and he's like is this your mother's murder is like, well he wouldn't know he can't look he's at not- him it's great can't look at him, but also he—he's not. There's, there was no witnesses. No, but he there's, knows. Yeah, of course he knows. Yeah, there's a good assumption. Bertie probably killed someone. Poor Bertie. Yeah, yeah. But that—that that, so we we, we I, I mentioned that, and then we never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just didn't make a lick of sense to me. Why Bertie would be like, can't tell anyone. Yeah, because you could just cut that whole. You could cut Bertie out of the movie, and it wouldn't. Make a difference. No, but I think what he's I think what he's there for is to show us to show John seeing that adults aren't going to help him, that he has to do this himself. Like yeah. he lets him down, and it's like it's worse than losing his father. Well, I like that as soon as you know they're like we'll go to Birdie's. I'm like Birdie's shit faced. Yeah, Birdie's not helping it. with anything. That's yeah. what I mean. Like as an adult now watching it, it's just like oh no, don't don't go to Birdie's. Drunk. Yeah, but he's a kid. He trusts, and it's this is a story about. A child, because, you know, Pearl's too young to really understand anything. She calls the preacher daddy within days. Although, you know what? She's loyal to John. Oh, yeah. She's aware of her relationships. But like, I don't think she understands the nuances. I don't think she comprehends death or any of that It's stuff. not until, but it's not, well, it's not until John is, is, is threatened in a real meaningful way that she finally gives up the location of the money. That's true. You know, he, she could have easily been, she's a little girl. She's easily manipulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but clearly he wins her over in other ways, but it's like she never, ever rats out the money because she made a promise. Yeah. That's yeah. true. She made a promise to John, which is great. Which which is really really nice because it just what it, it sets you up for the adventure they go on at the end, where she has complete faith in her brother to protect her, and that was like the one thing the dad asks at the beginning of the movie. He's yeah. like, "Promise me you'll protect Pearl with your life." Yeah, and when he can't uh, rely on Bertie, that's when it all happens. That's when it's all real, right? When he actually has to take that responsibility and get them out on the skiff and yeah. get into the water. But where what? she sings that bizarre song. Which I think was improvised and then looped because it's a, it's an adult singing. It's it. amazing. It makes it even more eerie. Yeah. So Bertie's backstory, yeah, you said he must have killed somebody at some point. His wife's been gone twenty five years and left him all alone. Maybe he killed her. Maybe something else happened that we don't know about. Maybe he was drunk then and she died or left him. But it's like, why would you assume Bertie? Like, what's that guy's reputation? I guess he we never a small boy coffee in the morning, which is again, I know it was the thirties, but that's just weird. Yeah. You don't get a sense if he's... And, and you get a sense that he's not an actual uncle. Yeah, there's no... He tells a story at one point of how he became Uncle Bertie to him. I think he saved him one time in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be. And that, so they referred to him as Uncle Bertie. That would make sense. He's the sort of the, the harmless guy in the in the cabin ever since the, the dock went away, ever since the port left, because the, the steamboats don't stop there anymore. 
Maybe he did something. I it's like the station master once they they, they the decommissioned station. Yeah, yeah, he still lives there because yep. he's got nowhere else to go just and can't, just won't go home. Yeah. Keeps making coffee, keeps waving at the boats. Let train, him do it. He's train, harmless. Yeah, train might stop at some point. <laughs> I'll just stay here. Yeah, and then twenty five years go by. Ugh. But it's just it's part of this texture, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it makes emotional sense. This whole town is this weird frozen place where the whole thing works if you think of it as a parable mm. you know because it all it's all very heightened yeah you and know? it's all it's all of the parables right it's moses and the bulrushes there's a kind of a christ thing going on with uh with the, the preacher's conviction that he will reinvent himself and rise again he's but he's talking to jehovah he's talking to the old testament god he actually oh, yeah. says his name which is like the first commandment or the second one you're not supposed to take it in vain I think it's the second one. Maybe the third. I'm, I'm bad at this. It's, it's in there. But he's, yeah, he's just violating everything left and right. But it's always uh, justifiable to him because it's what he wants to do. Amazing. Single-minded fury. Yeah. And it makes me want to dive into uh, all those those top ten lists and just, and just reread the comments on why they, they each individually picked the movie. And I think everybody will mention on some level that it's like this nightmare or this dream or this well, this this beguiling reality that pulls them in. Uh, that seems to be its effect and historically. Because it's funny because watching it as I was experiencing it in the first, especially the first beginning of it, it's it's so fascinating because you're watching it going, like these shots, they all work, but it's like, this feels like it was made by a film student who was given way more resources than yeah. he knew what to do with. But it's somebody that's definitely got some kind of a vision, but they don't know how to articulate it, and they're just kind of bumbling through it, and they've somehow created this thing. But it's also the kind of movie that is going to stick with me. Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about this for days. Yeah. Well, once it clarifies, once it tells you what kind of movie it's going to be, which is just a non-specific kind of fever dream of twisted Christianity and, and innocence defiled and all of this. Like it's all about the over and over again, these kids are deprived of things. They yes. lose everything and then they find a new family and then the monster comes. It's elemental in a way that is just incredibly upsetting and affecting, even when it's being absolutely ridiculous. Like even when Robert Mitchum is clucking like a chicken and running away and <laughs> gibbering, it's still <laughs> disturbing, right? Because he was so composed right up until then. Yeah. And this is on Criterion Channel now, right? Uh, no, it's not not yet. Anyway, it wasn't when I checked okay. just now. Oh, yeah. I thought you. Yeah, I thought that was one of the ones you had. Yeah, because it's a newer Blu-ray release, I think. A couple of years at least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the new ones aren't on there yet. Yeah, it's it's weird. I think I think it's part of a package. Uh, there was a whole press release. They're they're going to roll stuff out slowly, yeah. and they released the entire April calendar. And I think it's in there somewhere, but I can't be certain. It's fascinating. Fascinating. So if you've, if you've listened to this without having seen it... Yeah, don't uh, watch it on a laptop. Find a no, way... No, find a way to watch it much bigger TV because... TV in the dark. Some of those, yeah, darkest room you can get <laughs> in. No, just because it is... Black, I mean, all black and white needs to be watched on in dark rooms because otherwise you get these gray tones and scales that just wash it out. Yeah, and this is really... you. This is not a movie to be watched in the daytime. You need to see it in the dark. No, this is the perfect circumstance. Yeah. yeah. Go home in the nighttime and think about what you've learned. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. It uh, so in in your I'm, I'm trying. It just there's so many. It's it's he's drawing on so many interesting things, mm-hmm. and then I I can just imagine the inspiration that came out of this for for filmmakers who hadn't seen anything like this at the time either. Just the people that were coming up 
in the sixties too. And because of all the biblical stuff, this this plays right into uh, the Hayes Code just fine. Sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I was just I watched um, Drunken Angel by uh, Kurosawa last night. Oh yeah. And uh, that's a fascinating film that I guess a lot of people just consider his first film in some ways because. It was his first film he was making that was post-war Japan, and the censorship was changing. Right. And so suddenly you could do things in movies you could never do before uh, in Japan. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting uh, how a lot of people are like, that's the first real movie that feels like it has a Kurosawa stamp on it, because... Right. The, yeah, have you seen the movie? Years and years ago. Because yeah. it, it's the kind of movie where it's like every... Which is, I think, what, was what Kurosawa does really, really well, is that... Every character is kind of shades of gray. There's no real... The heroes aren't always heroes, and the villains aren't always villains, mm-hmm. and which is a very different thing than that. Sorry. Yeah. We're tangent. But, um, but in terms of morality and, and flexibility, that's sure. where we go. No, but it just also makes me really think about this, because this is 1955, so we're right in the midst of the, of the Hayes Code and, and what you can and can't do. So, But it's interesting how this movie flirts with, with that as well. Like They don't show... As soon as the the knife goes up and it's down into Shelley Winters, we cut away. Um, We don't really... Like, he mentions... uh, Uncle Bud mentions that her throat is slit like it's another mouth. Like an extra mouth, yeah. We don't see that. No, it's very disturbing. I also wonder... um, Actually, you know what? That was my first... Yeah, that was my first encounter with Night of the Hunter was in Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, which is his history of uh, horror in, in... initially in literature and then in, in cinema. And he included Night of the Hunter, and I never really understood why, but he talks about that scene, the shots of her, and he was convinced that it happened at nighttime. He saw it on television or something and, and took away this terrifying moment of seeing Shelley Winters through the darkness, through the water. And then he said, he writes in the book that it's like, but then someone pointed out to me that we couldn't see it if it was in the dark, and then I watched it again, and it was the daytime, which makes me think that we make the dark in our memories, which is a sentence that I've never, that's like haunted me. We make the dark in our memories. because that's what this movie is about. Like, he found the metaphor without actually understanding it. This is a story that the kids don't experience as horror, but we experience it for them. Yeah, it's great. Yes, it's it's so interesting. It's it's such a, a baffling, bizarre movie, but it's also, I can see why it's so beloved. Yeah, and Lawton died seven years later, never made another movie. Ah, maybe he would have. I wonder. I mean, you can see him. He is in Spartacus, I double-checked. Uh, he plays, I always confuse him and um, Peter Ustinov, but he's one of the older senators, and he's just this casually debauched Roman who's just standing around going, well, you know, status quo, everybody's awful, I'm just going to do whatever I want while I can. And he's having a lot of fun being very campy in a way that I'm pretty sure Kubrick wouldn't have wanted him to be. <laughs> but... You know, he he couldn't but fire anybody. He was par- he was parachuted in to replace Anthony Mann. He had to shoot the thing quickly and with what was in front of him. And you just get this incredible, lively performance. And then you watch it later and think, "That's the guy who made Night of the Hunter, huh?" Okay. Hilarious. Yeah. And so, what uh, what do you take away from this viewing, having not seen it for a couple of years? Mostly the technique. Just uh, again, this. I think when I first saw it, I was overwhelmed by the imagery, and I just followed the emotional story. Uh, subsequently. The last time I watched it, I just admired it. It's, you know, beautiful. And this time I was looking at, that's a soundstage, that's a house, that's real, that's not. The shadow play is amazing. And just thinking about how impossible, like, a third of this film is. 
uh, and it still just totally works. What do you mean by impossible? Well, the shots shouldn't work. The the tension shouldn't line up. Like the the beats yeah. of the scene don't lead into each other, and it all just manages to be a thing that is a thing. It's a single work that it's like you know I, I use the phrase of movie arguing with itself a lot to kind of codify a film where the tones don't match where some things don't work and the film just doesn't understand that and powers through this one is arguing with us because it's trying to tell us what kind of movie it is and it can't articulate it and then all of a sudden it just it, it just we surrender yeah I wonder how uh, how much that is Lawton and how much is like his editor and or producers or the studio or just other other mm-hmm. forces that are involved well or if that's this feels like his cut though right like if it was a studio cut, the music wouldn't clash so much and there'd be more of a flow to it. It would have been like you could you could do yeah. a really basic version of this movie and take out all the subtlety. It would be 72 minutes long, but you could do it. And the fact that it isn't that tells me this is pretty much what he had in mind or at least what he ended up with. Really, watch the documentary. Watch the watch directed by Charles Lawton because it is fascinating to see what he's trying to get out of the actors. He's, he has something in mind. Yeah. And I think this was it. Interesting. Well, yeah. I'm, I, I, I have uh, to finish my taxes tomorrow. So <laughs> that seems like the right thing to have on in the background. Oh, you're going to get so distracted. It's okay. If it takes me uh, the whole time to, to finish it up, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll allow that. It's, it's fine. It. Well, thanks for coming over. Oh, wouldn't have missed it. <laughs> Let's all go to the... Thanks for joining us for Night of the Hunter. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at LonJeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lodge.